0: Welcome to Journaling with Nature, the podcast for those who want to turn curiosity into wonder, a pencil sketch into a rabbit hole of discovery, a moment of stillness into a life full of joy. I'm your host, Bethan Burton. Let's open the pages of our nature journals and explore this world together. Hello, this is episode 21. Today's conversation is a special treat for me because I had the privilege of interviewing my favourite professor from my university days. I met Professor Roger Kitching in 2001 when he lectured me for a biology class during the first year of my undergraduate degree, which was in ecology and conservation biology. When I contacted him to ask if he would come on a podcast all about nature journaling, Roger happily agreed and then he directed me to a book called Field Notes on Science and Nature which is a collection of essays from different scientists detailing their experiences, keeping field journals. The book is edited by Michael Canfield with a foreword by EO Wilson, and I definitely recommend you check it out. It's extremely interesting for anyone who loves nature journals and field journals. Professor Kitching has a wonderful chapter in this book where he talks about how he uses the details captured in his field notebooks to create a more polished piece of writing for a publication. In his essay, he also writes about the experience of evacuating a student with a broken leg from a very isolated field station in Borneo. It was to this same field station in the Forest of Brunei where Roger took the first group of students from Griffith University in 2002. I was lucky enough to be part of this amazing field trip and we talk about it during our conversation. When I record these podcast interviews, it's a video chat so I can see my guests, even though it's only the audio that's recorded. You'll hear during my conversation with Roger that we are holding up our actual field notebooks to show each other. There was something something about having these special books there in front of us was so much fun. I actually found inside the cover of mine the post-it notes that Roger had left in the front of my journals when he marked them almost 20 years ago. We also talked about some naturalists from history, and just for a little bit of context for those who aren't familiar with this story, there was a British naturalist and explorer named Alfred Russell Wallace, who was born in 1823 and died in 1913. He did a lot of fieldwork in the Amazon rainforest and later in the Malay Archipelago, Singapore, Malaysia and Indonesia. Through his observations in the field, he made the biogeographical observation that this area seemed to be the point of transition between animals characteristic of tropical Asia and those that have an Australian origin, namely marsupials and monotremes. Wallace actually drew a line on the map dividing Bali from Lombok and Borneo from Sulawesi, noting that to the west of this line there was Asian fauna, and to the east you begin to see Australian species. This is known as the Wallace line. Wallace is also famous for having discovered independently the mechanism behind natural selection and speciation while living in the forest in Malaysia, and he posted his essay on the subject off to his scientific friend and mentor, Charles Darwin. And meanwhile, Darwin, who had made this very same discovery many years earlier, before Wallace, but who had been too conflicted to publish his ideas then realized that he had to immediately publish his theory of evolution by natural selection if he didn't want to be usurped completely, even though that wasn't Wallace's intention. Anyway, we touch on these events during the interview, so that's just a little bit of context about Wallace and Darwin to set the scene. So let's get into the interview. Professor Kitching grew up in the port city of Hull in North Yorkshire, England, and was a keen naturalist from a very young age. I began by asking about these early nature experiences.
1: It is a a very strange fact that I was always obsessed with animals. I mean, obsessed, I didn't. I was (laughs) passionate about knowing about them, not just, you know, sort of cuddling the pussycat but actually accumulating all of this animal trivia. Um, And that's in a way rather unusual because I came from a a working class family. My father was a a warehouse man. My mother was a housewife. I I am the first university graduate in our extended family. not only that, we lived in a government housing estate, as we'd say in Australia, a council estate in, in Yorkshire, in a city, in a suburban, in, in a suburb. Now, it wasn't far to walk from there into countryside or into fields and so on. Um, but the other great obsession was collecting things. Collect and I mean I suppose that's why I, I ended up as a as a as an entomologist, but I started off like most kids did in England in those days collecting birds' eggs but not for very long, but then shells um, um, fossils um, um, fungal spore prints um, um, what else did I collect uh, press flowers. Uh, whatever, anything that could be collected, until eventually when I was 13, I got round to insects. I had tried butterflies and moths, so to speak, a couple of years earlier, but the technicalities involved in collecting them and preserving them were, and the equipment you needed, because we certainly didn't have the money for equipment. I, I, I bought my first butterfly net, with the money I got from selling a second-hand banjo.
0: Really? Which,
1: <laughs> my, my father used to run jumble sales, you know, mm-hmm. uh, for, and also and he would get all sorts of stuff and they would come to our house and then periodically there would be this sale for the trades association that he belonged to and was involved with. Anyway, this banjo turned up and I grabbed it and took possession of it and I restrung it. I actually got to teach yourself how to play the banjo and then I realised A, it was very difficult and B, I wasn't at all musical and that, that was borne out subsequently. Um, so I took it to this shop that used to sell things for people, I suppose, it looked a bit like a pawnbroker and they mm-hmm. put it in the window and it sold. And I immediately bought a postal order, sent it off to the uh, entomological supply place in the south of England, got this fantastic butterfly net. Um, And I guess I was about 12 or 13 when that happened. Uh, And we went from there. So, look, there's a lot of those. But I was always passionate about this. And I read and I read and I read Mm. and I read. And I've still got the books. I I mean, my parents were not very literate and they certainly weren't intellectual, but they encouraged me and my brother for that matter, but uh, I was the academic one. Um, So I have the Field Guide to the Birds of Britain, Britain, uh, which is a serious book, it's not a kid's book. And it says in the front, you know, with love from uncle somebody or other who no doubt just handed over the money. And that was when I was eight because mm-hmm. well, nineteen fifty three it says there's a date in it, and that was when I was eight, so that interest had become serious now i wasn't i didn't go out and recognize a lot I wouldn't look to a lot of birds, but i wasn't very good at you you need experts with you but by the end of a year i'd learned every name every single one, including you know all the the uh unlikely rare migrants and all vagrants and that sort of thing but then when I was 14 uh, one of our neighbors had seen me pottering around in the garden with a butterfly net and he was in the city naturalist club the sort of amateur uh, which was a very northern thing because it was mostly was mostly bird watchers and botanists and photographers and things anyway he he came to see my father, and he said he'd noticed the lad as he called him, with a butterfly in it and he really opened <laughs> and that was one of the the key points because for the first time, I met professional biologists, mostly teachers, but one or two people from the local university and The other thing that was brilliant was I went through the English grammar school system, which was this well, it doesn't exist anymore, was this entirely meritocratic one-fail-and-you're-out sort of deal. (laughs) But I was very academic, so it wasn't a Mm -hmm. problem. And they had an extremely good head of biology there. And, you know, everything flowed from there. Um, Mm -hmm. And um, I did well at school, went to university and all the rest of it, but always with this passion for nature, which is still there. Mm -hmm. I mean, I yes. wander around this place that we live every day looking for bugs or looking at birds or trying to figure out what what had to tell one gum tree from another, this sort of yeah. thing. So, you know, but I don't know why this is. I mean, my parents were not particularly interested. They were encouraging, but they were just as encouraging of my brother, who was a train spotter, for God's sake. So you know it's just one of those things, something it's in and, it's and invis- inside you yep, yep, and you know I would as soon as I learned the word word zoologist i i um
0: yep.
1: said, well, that's what I wanted to be, and my parents would say, "Well, what are you actually going to do for a living?" And I had no idea <laughs> and just that this and I went I did a degree in zoology, well zoology and botany, but majoring in zoology and then a PhD and all the usual academic stuff and of course then I realised that well, in fact there were all sorts of jobs that people like me did, uh, not just <laughs> academic and, and it went from there.
0: Yeah, and so during these years when you were studying at Imperial College London and in uh, University of Oxford, you began to start your life as a professional and you started to go out and do various expeditions. And in these years, you started keeping your first field journals, your first field notebooks.
1: No. Well, well, yes and no. I mean, I had already kept diaries. um, Okay. um, Starting in 1960. This is 1961. Uh, And this was, you know, what I did at school every day and this sort of thing. Yes. Um, And it was an obsessive thing and I did it Mm -hmm. for three and a half years uh, and as I went into my sort of equivalent grade 12 exams um, I stopped and there were other things. Imperial College though was a a wonderful place to be a zoology student. There were only 12 of us in the year and Imperial College was famous for its exploration club and so every year uh, groups would get together and decide to go somewhere, outrageous. In in my case, <laughs> the, uh, Ethiopia, uh, and uh, I mean, Ethiopia, old Ethiopia, the Ethiopian em- uh, empire with Haile Selassie in charge. Was that um, your
0: first t- time out of England?
1: Uh, no, not quite. I had been to France on an exchange okay. when I was learning mm-hmm. French. Um, and I'd also been to Holland uh, when I was seven, um, I, in fact that's when I gave my first lecture because uh, my father's trade organisation, because Hull was the port from which the ferry boats yes, yes. went across to to Holland
0: um, Yes, I've caught that ferry myself
1: Yeah, from, from Hull to Rotterdam um, and you could do these little trips where you got on one way spent three days there and came back and it was very i had no idea it was very cheap but my father's trade organization organized a tour and my father took me uh on that trip um i do remember because we went to this huge bird park uh, and my father was one of the organizers he was very good at organizing things and um I persuaded him that we had to go to a zoo of some sort, and we went to this place <laughs> called Avifauna um, in uh, I don't know where it was, The Hague or somewhere like that, and that was where I first learned the word Avifauna. But not only that, when I came back, I was seven, so I was still in primary school. Uh, when I came back, uh, it was very, very unusual for kids to travel in those days, other than to the sort of caravans on the coast or whatever. So the teacher picked me up and stood me on the desk and said, tell us about it. So I lectured the class about, and and I did for, I don't know how long, but at least half an hour. So I always had the gift of the gab, fortunately. But anyway, oh, back sorry, to I it.
0: interrupted you. Yes, yes. Go back to Ethiopia.
1: Uh, well, imperial, so a group of us got together and we were originally going to go to what is now Botswana, but um, we got diverted because you had to have a project. You had to have something that was at least quasi scientific. And four of us in the end um, raised money, um, got some support from the uni and we, for three and a half months, we went to northern Ethiopia to Lake Tana, and we lived in a village uh, of um, a minority tribe called the Waitel. and We did what would now be called human ecology we We mapped the village um, i I studied the agriculture and the um, the fishing it was a fishing village and that sort of thing and I kept. A journal here it is um, Wow but I didn't keep it going I, I it's I kept it going for 60 days the last mm-hmm. entry in here says 61st day um, 61st day the 26th of August 1965 and then I got engaged in other things on the expedition. Mm-hmm. And I got back and I deeply regretted that because although I can remember what happened subsequently, it's I can't sort it out by days.
0: Mm.
1: So the following year, uh, I went to... Uh, we, we, we organized a little private expedition with some friends and we went to the Arctic. And this time, I determined to persevere there you are. There's there. It is complete with a pressed leaf from wow. from Finnish Lapland, probably <laughs> illegally imported into Australia <laughs> as vegetable matter. So you know, the, I mean, I, I read, I'd read and I'd read and I'd read um, Darwin and I'd read Wallace mm. and I'd read all sorts of other people, and I still do. And they were keeping journals. And then what they did, and and later this is what I found journals were essential for, they turned them into pucker accounts. You know, very few people, unless you're Darwin or Wallace, as famous as that, nobody ever publishes the journal as such, but they use it as a base for constructing stories. So, for instance, the chapter that was in Field Notes, the book we were talking about, uh, is a combination of two sets of events, one of which was based on a journal and one of which was the early stuff in Hull, which was actually partly based on the day-to-day events that are recorded in here, including what beetles I found on the nat- natural, Uh, naturalist society field trips it's all in here Um, and I you know I read it and that day is back there uh, in in my head even though most of it says you know went to school did double maths and whatever um, (laughs) at the weekends it either describes my uh, early dates with various young ladies um, or well, it does, but not in in a in very cute and and restricted style, shall we say um but it also says I went to such and such a place with the naturalist club, found uh, found uh, such and such a beetle. In fact, one of those pictures you can, you can see on the wall behind me is a painting I did quite recently, of one of the beetles I found on one of those expeditions. Uh, um, anyway. All yeah. those
0: years ago. That's wonderful. That's wonderful that those memories can be absolutely preserved so fresh yep. in your mind. Exactly.
1: And through, now I've got...
0: Through decades. Yeah. They, they become an absolute, absolutely invaluable treasure.
1: Uh, absolutely. That stack of Well, they, they become memory extenders, basically. Uh, but more, they're much more than that because often, as anybody who's kept a journal knows, you don't write about everything, and you don't necessarily go off on too long, sort of philosophical rants. Because apart from anything else, if you've been on a field expedition, um, by the end of the day, when you've got to write your diary, you're absolutely exhausted, and and yes. um, at best you can, and sometimes you've got two or three days to catch up on. Uh, It's really not a time when you want to sit down and write long essays about um, how you feel and reflections on. That all comes later. Um, But it's all, the facts are there and you can go back to them.
0: In those early ones, in the beginning from Ethiopia and the Arctic, were you keeping sketches as well as accounts or mostly mostly using words? I
1: often did little um, thumbnails just with my pen but it mm-hmm. wasn't um, and um, what happened after I finished uni I went to, well, first of all I was a research fellow in Canada um, for t- just two years and did some travelling there in Western Canada, it, all different parts of the states and Mexico and I didn't keep diaries. I dearly Mm. wish I had but everything was new, I was newly married, there were two of us Um, um, dropping out every day for an hour or half an hour to do a diary wasn't one of the options Um, and then we came to Australia and again now we had kids um, and uh, there were two While I worked for CSIRO in Canberra, there were two major expeditions on field trips, other than what I was doing for a living, which was um, sampling blowflies in the southern tablelands, which wasn't something you necessarily wanted to record the details of (laughs) other than in data books. But I did go to New Guinea for the first time uh, and went into the highlands Uh, collecting butterflies with a uh, a guy who's become a a good friend of mine subsequently, Don Sands. But I also um, was part of the Alligator Rivers Survey Expedition in 1971, which went up to what is now Kakadu, but was then just Western Arnhem Land to do a biological survey, CSIRO were contracted to do this and we went in there, into that country uh, when it was just two wheel tracks through the grass to get there. Um, All of these famous indigenous sites and art sites and burial sites, all sorts of places that we probably shouldn't have been, were just there in the grass, so to speak, or in the the rock formations. But I didn't keep a diary, and that is my greatest re- regret. And that set me up so that when the next major opportunity came up, which was some time later, was to go on the Project Wallace expedition to Sulawesi in, uh, in 1985 now, I absolutely decided I would keep a journal and keep it assiduously. And that's when drawings began to become more of a feature. Um, Mm -hmm. And they gradually developed. Um, There were either little thumbnail sketches just with a pen or later, by the time you and I met, and we, uh, we were I was working in Borneo. Then I'd worked a little bit on my artwork and mm-hmm. um, was doing watercolours and then subsequently gouaches. Um, and i continued to do that. But many of the more recent trips, there just frankly hasn't been the leisure to do that.
0: Because yes. it's all
1: very, I if I am doing a, a painting, then um, generally I can do a quick line sketch without any problem, just in pencil or um, or pen. But if it's going to be a painting, then I I'm not much of an artist. I have to divide the thing up into squares and all that sort of thing in order to, transfer an image usually because once we we got digital images then uh, it became quite different but what i've never done almost never done is used photographs
0: Mm.
1: i take them but the idea of going back and printing them off and going and gluing leaving spaces for them and all the rest of it no that's not (laughs) that that becomes a scrapbook not a journal you know a journal mm-hmm. something you do while you're out there i mean generally when i climbed on the plane to come home from wherever that was the end of the journal uh, yes. i mean i didn't i didn't sit down at home and write write more of the journal i might have written an article or a or a paper or something that described the results sometimes in fact i certainly in the big book I wrote about food webs. I did use the journals to introduce sections of that book with a a sort of um, atmospheric piece,
0: um, a narrative, and,
1: and that was derived from the journals. But it but again, it wasn't the actual words in of the journals.
0: I like that what you said in your book in your essay in field notes on science and nature that you have three layers of of writing so you you, the first one is the field notebook where all the all the data goes in everything that you
1: the numbers the numbers
0: exactly and then the second layer is your journal which is the daily accounts the the drawings the events the thoughts and observations and then there's the publication so a journal article or maybe a magazine or a book I love that. And the journal is like really key to inform the more polished end result, which is... Absolutely. And, yeah. I,
1: I, you know, when you even when you write a, a boring numerical description of results or interpretation of results, there comes a point in there when you have to say, we set our light traps on and you've put the dates in. You say, cripes, what were the dates? And then yeah. they weren't in the notebook, but they're in the journal,
0: and okay. <laughs> you go
1: scraping through to find exactly that. Because if you're writing popular articles, and I always intended to write a full popular book, which um, mm. I already, I think, I already have sort of half written, but it comes and it goes, and that's very much that sort of one chapter per expedition. Um, mm whether that will ever get finished frankly beth and i i don't know Um i keep i pull it up occasionally and write a few paragraphs um, yes. i think if i if i had a publisher i would probably get off my rear and <laughs> and finish it because it wouldn't be that it wouldn't be that hard because a lot of it's done you yes. know, you know i'd have to go through and change things where i say now 30 years later it would now be 40 years later or something
0: <laughs> i want to read that book roger so well, do it <laughs>
1: yeah, yes um, i mean other people they, it's now become a bit of a genre uh yes this, it has uh, yeah uh writing up uh, uh not not like um not like uh michael Camfield's book that's a compilation the field yes. notes book uh but um uh, my very good friend Vojta Novotny, who is in the Czech Republic and has worked all his working life in Papua New Guinea and has probably got closer to um, the way of life in Papua New Guinea than any other biologist um, and it, indeed it's him I'm going to work with for three months next year, Covid permitting. But. Um, he wrote, has written a wonderful book called uh, Field Notes from New Guinea, uh, mm. which he wrote in his native Czech uh, and then had um, uh, an expert translate it into, English. normally he writes in English, but mm. it, it's just, and it's a, that's a whole series of little essays, reflections on, it's not about, not really about biology at all, uh, it's about how he, he compares he, he contrasts um, belonging to a small tribe in Europe by which he means the Czechs mm. uh, with the tribal life in um, Papua New Guinea uh, and all the sort some really really amusing comparisons
0: that's, and that's that sounds the sort of book
1: I'd like to write but yes. I don't think I tend to get too serious you know. Um, <laughs> Um, What you have to try and do is is use the journals to talk about an expedition. But you can't write a book. with Well, not anymore. Um, Attenborough and Durell and people did this in their early careers, which was really just an animated journal, you know. Then we moved here and did this and so on. That doesn't work anymore. You've got to have a point to each chapter. Um and um uh, that means you certainly in the present state of the world, you tend to get into serious stuff, so yes. about habitat destruction I mean
0: climate change finally,
1: yeah. finally, <laughs> Attenborough who uh, when I worked with attenborough he he said to me he didn't get into all that conservation stuff because w- whatever job he had to do he would go to the best place in the world for seeing gorillas or, or filming coral reefs. Well, he changed. He changed his mind, obviously. And the, the latest book uh, is, is absolutely a, a rather depressing um, yes, um, reflection on his part on how he's seen nature deteriorate over his mm. working career. Fortunately, I think in terms of um, the joy of nature. When I, I I worked with him all thirty years Tell ago. Tell me the just, story
0: because I didn't just know.
1: for a weekend, just for a weekend. Okay. He came to Lamington National Park to film Bowerbirds. birds. Uh, this was when they were producing the series Trials of Life, which was the second second set of films they made. Um, in the new style, the first one was Life on Earth, and the second one was Trials of Life. And he was going to then uh, move on to film um, caterpillar ant interactions, and in in other words, talk about mutualisms where both mm-hmm. both species engaged in a a, a two way interaction benefited from that. And I had done the basic work on that uh, as a part of my entomological research. Oh, long before you and I met. I mean, very early days at Griffith, so in the mid 70s. And so while he was filming Bowerbirds at Lamington, um, the team, the BBC invited me to go and spend a weekend there with them during which time i was supposed to brief him and tell him all about the,
0: the okay the
1: caterpillar stuff which he actually filmed in townsville with an ex-student of mine called chris hill but i spent the entire weekend at Lamington with them and it was fantastic and he was just mm-hmm. a, an amazingly empathetic sort of person as well as being interesting and and uh, remarkably uh, literate and all the rest of it. So that was very exciting. I didn't keep a a journal about that, but I often wonder whether he kept journals because he always wrote books, because I I know what what he did, how it worked in his case was we would, in between filming the Bowerbirds, we would sit down together uh, in the lodge there and i would tell him all about whatever uh, butterfly ant interactions and he would immediately write the script
0: really? i mean not
1: at the same time but immediately afterwards and he would yep. work on it late in the night while he was uh, and i mean that was his brilliance because he wrote all his own scripts and he wrote them on the go i mean he would so they would go out and they would see what the the Bower bird was doing, and I mean he would know the basic biology of the Bowerbird. bird, but the actual script, what he actually said, you know that wonderful English voice, um, <laughs> which so many people try and imitate now, even especially <laughs> people trying to sell things on television ads. You can just tell that this is. A, You know, when they say, now the children are foraging for the chocolates. (laughs) It's Attenborough down the line. It really is. Um, How anybody will ever match that, I don't know. But anyway, (laughs) he would go and make some observations, do part of the film, and then rush back in and write some more of the script, because obviously he would have been... Because when you're looking at wild nature, you don't always get what you want, but you always get something else, and you have to make mm-hmm. something of it. He's that, learning on the spot. You know? yeah, yeah, OK, and yeah. He's just mm-hmm. so, so impressive. He he still is impressive. I only met yes. him the once, I might add. Oh, no, twice. Once when I was a student, and he came and talked to the, the University Natural History Society just after he'd come back from Madagascar. And then... Um, 40 years later or whatever it was, 30 years later, when he was doing uh, Trials of Life. But it's such a nice man. I met a lot of these uh, TV naturalists and they're not, um, without naming names, they're not necessarily very nice people off screen. Okay. But, but <laughs> David was just, uh, mm. just uh, a pleasure to be with.
0: I love that story. I haven't heard that before. <laughs>
1: I've got a lot of stories.
0: You've got... <laughs> so for context, let's talk about how we met. So um, in my first year of university, which was 2001, oh my gosh, I met you because you were my biology professor. And you your secret way of getting people to pay attention in class was to offer the students with the top results at the end of the term, the chance to go on a field trip to, to Borneo. That was a cheeky trick. In 2001,
1: Bethany, it wasn't quite like that. Uh, And this is absolutely true. I was lecturing you and your class. I forget about what. But it was my habit to break up the material stuff that you were supposed to know with stories about... Yes. um, My field work in various places. And I had been talking, I think, about Brunei and pitcher plants and the animals that live in and around pitcher plants. And people were clearly interested. And without any forethought, in the middle of the lecture, I said, (laughs) and I will take 18 of you there next summer there was no pre-planning beyond that point
0: i didn't know that you did it on the spot
1: um i I mean subsequently it became they still go it's become it's become a an absolute uh ritual now every year and i did it for 13 years but that very first one was (laughs) utterly spontaneous and as you recollect i
0: had no idea I, I remember the moment. I remember when you said it yeah, because I, my mouth went, "Huh? What?"
1: Yeah, well, that's right. And there were <laughs> there must have been what 150 people in the class mm-hmm. um, in that first year lecture, and um, I said, I, "I mean, I made it up as I went along." I said, "Look, <laughs> go to the office, and if you'd like to come, sign up." And somebody said to me. Uh, prof how are you going to decide who goes I, I said well i'll take the order of merit list and i'll compare that with the people who want to go and i'll take the best 18 and i did that for years it wasn't approved of by the university because it was <laughs> it, it was meritocratic god forbid a university <laughs> should be meritocratic um but of course it t- re- totally changed that class from that point on uh, i mean there were people who who told me that that it, subsequently because the you know I mean, it was it, i think it turned out more like 20 people every year for 13 years so that's mm. nearly 300 people who went to borneo with me and um um there were many people who came along, and I say, "Well, look, you know, you've got to get a high distinction or something like that, and that'll be really good because you'll go on and get into second year." and And they would say, "We don't give a damn about that. We just want to go to Borneo." And there were even pe- <laughs> there were even people who signed up for the degree explicitly because oh, they could wow. go to Borneo, oh, or, so, or so they said. They may have just been sucking up to me. I don't know, but uh, yeah. Um, well, and, I
0: remember that moment when you said that in class. I yeah. remember it so clearly because I was like, I have to go on this trip. And I focused so hard. I dropped everything else and I was focusing. My goal that, that first semester was well, I've got to s- achieve in this biology
1: Several class. of my colleagues complained <laughs> that people had stopped working in their <laughs> units because they were spending all their time. Um, on the biology stuff, but I mean, it, my task was to um, not only get people engaged with biology, which I certainly did, uh, did. but also to inspire them to think, let them realise that they might be learning about the segmentation of the analytes, but this was real and that it was out there and and the connection was with Wallace or whomever, or, yes. or uh, Humboldt, or or me, sloshing around yeah. in a rainforest. Yeah. I mean, there were a couple of people who came on those trips who had been turned on by Atterbury and other people about rainforests, and when they got there, one or two of them actually came to me and said, "I really can't handle this," and that, uh, <laughs> there were lots of reasons for that. But I didn't. They said that I didn't realize it would be so. Sp- or
0: wet or so muddy or I... <laughs>
1: generally sweaty, you know?
0: Yes, I remember. So so I did, I was in amongst those 18 and you took us to the rainforest in Brunei and it was and is one of the most amazing things that have ever happened in my life. It was so incredible. And that was where I first kept my first field journal, my first nature journal. And But I do remember you telling us, like, bring some clothes that you are happy to put in the bin on the way to the airport because you're going to get muddy. You're going to smell like an old shoe and whatever.
1: (laughs) But some people couldn't couldn't handle that. And I mean, we could actually, we only did two trips to Brunei and then we moved Mm -hmm. to Sabah, which in many ways was far more civilized. The facilities in Brunei were fairly basic as you recollect.
0: Um, Can you talk about that? So we were in Kuala Balalong Field Study Centre and we we had to go on a big journey to get there. We had to go first on a a motorboat and then on a bus, I think, and then on a longboat. It was in the middle of nowhere. Can you talk a little bit about the Field Study Centre?
1: The thing about the Sultanate of Brunei is that it's in two parts. Uh, There's the main part where the capital, Banda, Bagawan, is... And that's where the airport is, and it's where you fly into. But then there is a river called the Limbang, uh, the banks of which are actually Malaysian. They belong to Sarawak, not to Brunei. And then there's a long, thin bit of Brunei in the east, which is called Temburong, And that is mostly undeveloped. And that's where a lot of the very good forest is. And of course, because the country is so oil rich, it hasn't cut the forest down the way that, say, uh, has happened in much of Sarawak and Sabah. And the University of Brunei had set up a a field station uh, for their use but also for international use up the Balalong River under Kuala Balalong which is where the Temburong River and the and the uh, Balalong River met, Koala means um, confluence uh, as in Kuala Lumpur and all the rest of it. But um, now in order to get there therefore you flew into the capital on an international jet. Uh, We usually spent one night there I think Um, and then you had to get a motorboat which took you out into the mangroves, crocodile country uh, yes. but also proboscis monkey country. Yes. Um, and you had to go through a little bit of Malaysian waters and then up the river to um, a place called Bangar, not Bandar. And in Bang- Bangar you disembarked and then you, there was a short... Uh, I think we borrowed the local school bus to go for about 20 minutes to a longhouse, an Iban longhouse, Um called Batanduri, where we all had to squeeze into these canoes, which were driven by outboard motors, um, and head upriver for what, about half an hour, 40 minutes, Mm -hmm. uh, depending on how high the water was, Uh, and through several sets of rapids. Because uh, yes. it wasn't a very deep river, but it was quite rocky in places. And the Iban, the uh, local um, indigenous people who lived, ran this canoe service and indeed did most of the work in fact, all the work, I'd suggest in the field station um, and hence to the field station. If the river, if there was rain, and there often was very heavy rain then uh, the river could go from a sort of um, half-metre deep trickle to a raging torrent overnight. Yes. And this did happen several times. And if it happened to coincide with the time you had to go back, you know, to, make, to catch airplanes and things back to Australia, then some of those journeys back down the river were quite hair-raising. I mean, it, it was normally a thirty-five-minute run. I've done it in ten minutes, almost surfing down the river uh, with with somebody, one of the e-ban in the front with a big pole, essentially yes, to stave you off off rocks that, away
0: from rocks. Yeah. yeah.
1: So it was a very very exciting place to get to. Um, yes. And
0: once you get there, oh my gosh, it's like a different world. My memory is that everything there with was, was either way bigger than you think it should be or way smaller. So you'd see micro micro squirrels or giant squirrels. Or well, you'd right. see yeah, or you'd well, see a leaf that was bigger than you or you'd see like the tiniest yeah. thing or <laughs> Well, uh, I mean, it's for. partly
1: because most people had never been to a rainforest of any sort before. Um, but the other thing, of course, was going to Borneo, um, especially to an almost undisturbed part of Borneo. Mm. Uh, we had flipped from the Australasian realm of, yes. of nature to the Asia, the tropical Asian. So, all sorts of reasons why. There was so much diversity. We were in a mm. rainforest, it was tropical, uh, we were in Asia, um, we were in a, the, the land of, of placental mammals, not marsupials. So, much as I love our marsupials, um, they're not very diverse. Uh, Whereas, uh, for instance, you mentioned squirrels. There were yes, there were pygmy squirrels. There were there was prevos squirrel, the gorgeous black one with a ginger stripe down its side. There were the pygmy squirrels. There there are horsetail squirrels and so on and so. There are flying squirrels. There were three different sorts of flying squirrel, or more actually. There's flying lemurs, colugos. There's Porcupines. I don't know if you were there when we saw a big porcupine on the way out. Um, yes,
0: I remember. <laughs> I, I mean,
1: the only problem with with the Kuala Balalong station is the forest is or the topography is so steep that mm-hmm. covering any sort of ground is is very difficult. When we started going to Sabah, where there are uh, where it's much flatter, then you actually saw more wildlife not because there was more wildlife it's just that there was more opportunity for seeing it
0: Yes. so the field study center was right next to the river and then there was steep banks on either side exactly and
1: we did see wildlife we saw um, we did uh, we saw wild pigs we saw mouse deer we saw all sorts of stuff um
0: I, I just remember it as like... And um, oh, we saw otters. Every...
1: otters, yes.
0: I never saw otters there, but I just I saw hornbills. The hornbills yeah. were out of this world and we ho- we heard gibbons and I just remember um, someone calling, uh, someone would call every afternoon, look what I found, and we'd run down and yeah. we saw the lantern, what was it? That, oh, that the lantern we drew bugs, in our...
1: the uh, lantern full, full gored lantern bugs, yeah. Oh, look, amazing diversity of things, and Mm. that's where some of the drawings came in. Um, Yes. But uh, I moved the trip to Sabah the year, two years after your trip, um, partly because we had had an accident in year two at Brunei, um, which wasn't, well, it was, could have been life threatening, but all was well in the end. Um, But Getting somebody out of there when they mm-hmm. were injured turned out to be uh, an amazingly difficult thing to do. Um, uh, and, and I won't go into the detail of it, I've written about it and all the rest of it. But um, the Danham Valley field station at uh, Sabah and the subsequently Maliao uh, Basin field station there, both of which we've used. Um, uh, was easy to access. You could access it by road, was the point. A very rough forest road, but you could access it by road. So that (laughs) means when accidents happened and, you know, 13 years, 300 students accidents happen, um, you can respond to that without having this fourfold um, yes. Stages uh, to actually get to any sort of real assist- medical assistance. But there was a charm to uh, yes. Kuala Balalong simply totally. because it wasn't that fancy, you know.
0: Um, yes, yes. I remember, uh, I just got such amazing memories of that trip. And so the students were in like a. A wooden um, two-story thing. Two-story thing, and the and the staff were in an adjacent building. And I remember us like tiptoeing up to you guys when you were there at night, writing in your nature journals in your in your field journals, drinking um, gin maybe out of out of a specimen jar because. (laughs) because it was very rusty <laughs>
1: the terrible thing to remember uh, is that those specimen jars that we used all the time for our sampling little round ones are actually urine sample bottles <laughs> uh, and the reason we use them is because they are so cheap um, and we used hundreds of them when we were doing our research there so uh, I mean they had never been used for their Original intended purpose but you had to sort of block that from your mind while you drank your scotch or whatever it was. But you know that was one of the important things about the field trip because I I always took four staff, uh, sometimes with some ring-ins who paid for themselves but uh, there would be four people there, they later cut that back to three. Uh, because the costs went up hugely, globally, nothing to do with the university. Um, and the there was only 18 to 20, I think the most students we ever took was 22. Um, and they were all smart kids, uh, because they had to be over, either smart or at least nerdish. I mean, they, they had to have worked reasonably hard to get a place on this trip um, so they had to have developed an interest uh, even if they didn't already have one and so we actually got to know the students very well much more yes. so than when you're just looking at a sea of 150 faces where the only people you know are the one or two who ask questions or the one or two who are so ill behaved that you have to <laughs> do something about it, and you forget them almost immediately. But you don't forget, I don't forget, many, many of the people. Not only that, many of my very best subsequent honours and PhD students came from the Borneo crowd. Uh, They really did. Uh, Louise Ashton, who's uh, assistant professor at University of Hong Kong now, and one of my latest students, was turned on by the Borneo trip. Sarah Mornsell, who until recently was postdoc at Harvard uh, with Michael Pant Canfield who wrote the feud not in his lab but in the same building, Um, again was a Borneo bunny uh, Mm -hmm. and uh, went on to become a professional biologist Um, and that happened frequently, frequently Mm. um, and that was extraordinary.
0: I've got my field journal here, in fact. And do you know I've still got the little post-it note that you wrote in it. And it says this, Bethan, great pictures, good account. The best parts were where you say what you think about things. Roger, 25 out of 30. <laughs> well, that was pretty good. It, it's, it's interesting that you say that about writing what I thought about things because when I was keeping this book – I guess I was trying to be scientific and
1: that's not what a journal is. I mean, it can have yeah. the science embedded in it. I mean, look, it, it, there are a million different ways of writing, not a million, there are many different ways of writing a journal, but the, there's a fine line between, if you wish, letting it all hang out in a journal. I, I did get journals, <laughs> And, of course, I was marking these journals, which, generally speaking, when I write my journal, it's for me subsequently yes. or yes. anybody wants to read it after I'm dead, in which case I won't care. But um, <laughs> the, the student ones were being written and occasionally uh, there would be, what's the word, tensions between particular, among <laughs> particular students. And one or two of them would write about this at great length <laughs> uh, and so
0: you got that gossip in the jail. I
1: really didn't want to know that, so there's a fine <laughs> line you know but but you said you got there, and there were bigger things and smaller things and so much diversity, and that was what struck you well, that's yes. a far more interesting observation than simply saying. I found a millipede, and I found uh, a spider and i whatever yeah. uh, because it means you're thinking about what you saw and and you're comparing it with your previous experience, which is i mean it, that would signal to me that that you were responding to the environment in in a way uh, that is different from simply experiencing it in a trivial sense.
0: But, yes, you know. yes. Yeah. So then later on we had, we had to keep another field journal for a different subject. Do you remember this? Field Ecology. Oh, yeah. And it's got your... And do I say um, the same
1: thing? No, you didn't. <laughs> There's only a limited number of comments you can make. Oh, look, <laughs> the problem with field ecology was it was very short. So yes, one week. week
0: in Lamington National Park. Yeah, but yeah. It, no, this um, makes me smile because I was confused about it. But I'll tell, I'll read it to you. It says, "Bethan, as usual, an elegant and interesting journal, though your eastern spine bill may have more to do with Rousseau than John Gould." Twenty-three out of twenty-five. <laughs> this is the, this is the picture.
1: More to do Maybe with was- Rousseau?
0: Rousseau than John Gould. <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea what I meant.
1: I mean, it sounded—it <laughs> it sounded it intelligent, very didn't it?
0: Yeah, it does. Yeah, um, I was like, "Oh, I'm too. I'm not intelligent enough to understand."
1: <laughs> well, Rousseau was this uh, uh, environmental philosopher who okay. uh, who um, reflected on. It was almost. Um, I think that's probably what I meant. That what you you painted was almost the the um, the the mental image of the spine bill rather than the actual spine bill. Bear in mind, John Gould painted his f- birds from um, from skins. Generally speaking, mm. anyway. So
0: in in my but I second... I, don't, I don't know
1: what I was thinking at the time when I was probably <laughs> very quickly marking thirty of these things while yes. wishing I was doing something else. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I um I learned actually from your first comment and I realised that I didn't have to be writing scientific things to yeah. impress you, that I needed to be writing from myself, from my own yeah. experiences, from my own heart maybe. Um, and that second journal was, was different.
1: Did you get a better mark?
0: I did. It was um, 23 out of 25.
1: Well, you can't do, <laughs> you can't do better than that really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I mean I still keep these journals um, I showed you um, This is actually a diary This first one That was 1961 mm. I did keep one in 1960 When I was 16 But I haven't got it My mother threw it out With a lot of other stuff um, When the house was being cleared And um this one is from 2019, when mm-hmm. I uh, went with a film crew up to Cape Melville on Cape York. Um, for uh, And, uh, yeah, and there's, I don't know, I haven't counted them, there's about 25 volumes in between.
0: Wow. Wow.
1: Some of which stretch for a long time. I mean, the the six months we spent at Harvard, I kept a journal throughout that period which included many more sort of day to day things Um, but it did I mean that's when I was writing what I call my big book this Mm. one this one Um, Mm -hmm. and um, that diary does uh, chronicle how this was Mm. produced chapter by chapter and I would, I remember a couple of times when I got absolutely stuck, and then some set of experiences, not experiences, yeah, just talking with people or reading something, or sometimes just walking around in these lovely parks they have there, things would come clear in my head anyway, and then I'd go back and mm. write them down. And the journal does sort of, um, chronicle that that um, intellectual process which is interesting as well as yeah. saying what I had to dinner for dinner at the seafood restaurant and that sort of stuff
0: <laughs> one thing i felt when in borneo writing this my very first nature journal was a connection to naturalists in history like because we were right near the wallace line and we haven't really exp- you did touch on what the wallace line is for those who who, um, yep. who don't know, but Alfred Russell Wallace did a lot of work in that region, and then here we were keeping a nature journal, keeping a, a field journal, and I wonder how you feel about that. Do you feel connected with old naturalists of history when you're keeping your journals?
1: Uh, yeah, well, the, the, the trite answer is yes, but some mm. more than others... Um, Darwin was. uh, uh, He came from a moneyed class. He'd never had to worry about whether or not he had a future, so to speak, from a very young age. Uh, It was his biggest problem was figuring out what he was going to do, and indeed, it may well be that that he, um, because he was never trained as a biologist. He was self taught, so was Wallace. But but the difference was for a start, even I mean, Darwin made one major field trip in his life, which was on the Beagle. Uh, And um, although it was a small ship, it was nevertheless um, a haven he could go back to uh, after he'd been off looking for fossil mammals or whatever. He did take some ground trips, but, which is possibly where he got the, the uh, infection which is supposed to have affected the rest of his life. Nevertheless, he could retreat to the Beagle uh, and uh, so on. But Wallace was quite different. He went in the field, uh, found a house or a hut or a bivouac and, and spent months and months and months in the field. Um, he did keep journals, he did keep journals um, and they're interesting to read because they're on and off. Sometimes he'd write three lines for a day, sometimes he'd write a whole essay. Um, and he really, of course, he'd been in Brazil, um, uh, in the Amazon, uh, and he'd gone back to the UK and his ship caught fire. Uh, and he was in a longboat um, in the middle of the Atlantic. Uh, I think it was in the middle of the Atlantic. But all his collections were lost
0: oh, from dear. the Amazon,
1: almost all. Um, and he got back to the UK. And I mean, he was intending to sell these these collections in order to keep himself alive. Um, and he'd been there with um, Henry Bates. Bates stayed there. They split up when they got there. Bates wrote uh, naturalist on the river amazons uh, whereas Wallace's book was called travels on the amazon anyway doesn't matter uh, the point is that he rushed around raised money uh, and took off again this time for southeast asia where he was away for several years uh, and um, I admired the fact that he he picked himself up from losing everything and uh, went off there and really thought about things. I think this is one reason why I wrote on people's journals often. I would really like to know what you thought because Mm -hmm. um, he was collecting stuff, shooting birds, shooting mammals, whatever, skinning them, because he had to. That was how he made a living. And it, and it was a slightly different world in terms of attitude but nevertheless he did write some really conservation oriented things um and i've forgotten what i was going to say um
0: we were talking about feeling connected to
1: oh that's right because um there's a paper he wrote a short about four pages which you can find online called the sarawak law and the sarawak law was written about two years before the famous paper, which he, or presentation with Darwin, which uh, was all about the dynamics of speciation and evolution, the one that changed the world. But two years earlier, he wrote this thing called the Sarabak Law, and he reflected on the fact that whenever you found two very animals or plants or insects that were clearly re- similar to each other, they were usually geographically close to each other as well. Now bear in mind this was before the theory of evolution. Uh, It was at a time when the accepted dogma was that God created the world and plunked things in place. So if God had created these two very similar things, why plunk them in the same place or (laughs) or close together? And of course the Mm -hmm. reason, that it actually is that is because they, many of them, are derived from a common ancestor which would also have been in that place and some sort of um, uh, isolation occurred, to, uh, but on a local basis. And that Sarawak law, which would have completely gazumped um, Darwin, was so close, but he admitted he didn't understand the mechanism. Mm. but he observed this an uh, amazing essay very it's only 3 pages very easy to read uh, and then of course uh, in Tanate, in the moluccas he 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 had this he uh, inspiration that it
0: was in the haze of a malarial fever wasn't it that well, he realized well this, this
1: is the story this is the story he, he okay was, <laughs> he, he was certainly um convalescing after a bout of month, okay. which is why he was in one place and it was also as he himself says somewhere, I think, that he actually had enforced leisure, because he was so weak, that he was thinking about things.
0: Mm.
1: And uh, he says in um, a, a later paper he wrote for the Linnaean Society 50 years after after uh, A, after Darwin was dead, but 50 years after the um, 1858 revelation, or whenever it was, um, mm-hmm. he says that um, one reason this all came to him was that um, he had time to think about it. He was alone, he wasn't being interrupted. Um, he had read Malthus about uh, population increase, uh he he was fascinated by beetles the most diverse group of insects or one of them um but he said he he figured out what was going on in terms of natural selection and speciation uh and wrote it up as an essay and posted it off to england all in about a three-day period wow. whereas Poor old Darwin had been stewing on this for 20 years. Wallace didn't give a damn because he... Wallace wasn't part of the British establishment. He wasn't married to a very religious woman, wasn't married to anybody at the time. But Darwin was. Um, And although Emma Witch would really help Darwin uh, publish things later, especially later when Darwin was getting weak and debilitated and all the rest of it um, and she did support him very strongly. But before Darwin went publish, public with the idea he had to cope with this uh, mental burden that he was in a society that he knew he would offend mm. and he would mm-hmm, offend mm-hmm. to the very core of uh, their thinking and he would overturn a thousand yes. years of uh, of so-called understanding of how things were the way they were. And he would show that evolution was mechanistic, it wasn't supernatural, or oh, the creation of species was not supernatural, it was a mechanism. Uh, and that was, and he was frightened of publishing
0: that. Yes, it must have been a very difficult decision.
1: Well, no, it was forced on him. It was forced on him. It was forced (laughs) on him because um, uh, this letter for publication from Wallace arrived, and he thought, "Oh,
0: I'm going to miss out if I don't."
1: Um, (laughs) uh, All of this information he had, there's no doubt he had the idea long before Wallace, Mm
0: -hmm. but Mm -hmm.
1: it wasn't published. Um, yes. A few people knew about it. Hooker, the, the director of Kew Gardens, knew about it. Um, and in fact, Darwin was going to throw it all in and, and, uh-huh. and said, Well, look, Wallace has done it. And it was Hooker, that persuade, Hooker and others that persuaded him that um, there should be this joint presentation. And of course, Wallace was very gracious about it all because later, in reflection, he he would always cede precedence for the idea, which he didn't need to do. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and, but I think he got a rough trot in that regard. So I was always far more sympathetic, and of course I knew yes. Southeast Asia very well. So I always felt this connection with Wallace, and the yes. fact that he wrote journals and and wrote yes. ex- uh, extensively
0: when we were out there in borneo it was so such a an incredible feeling to be out there and i felt like something really big and important was happening and i would write in this journal and i regret that i didn't have fancy handwriting like the old naturalist that you see.
1: oh no no darwin's handwriting was terrible and my, my <laughs> mine has deteriorated uh My writing when I was 17 is is better than (laughs) when I was um, 75. Um, But but again, generally speaking, you're tired, you're doing it in a hurry. Yeah. You know? uh, But it's a
0: wonder that they produce, like some of the old naturalists would create these masterworks in the evening by lamplight that I just can't even fathom the work they did in the field in those conditions. Yeah,
1: well, they were tough, tough cookies, (laughs) but there there are plenty of, you know, I've had students working in Borneo since your time as a student who are living in field camps, just in in, uh, uh, jungle dongers and this sort of thing uh, with mosquito nets. I've been there myself and visited with them uh, and uh, yeah. It's not that different from uh, Wallace's situation, because they did have, they did have uh, occasional internet connection, which Wallace certainly didn't have. <laughs> Interestingly, if he had had instantaneous connection with Darwin, he would probably never have written the article, because once he'd had the big idea, his instinct was to write it down in a formal fashion. Whereas now you would do what the Chinese guy did who sequenced COVID. He immediately emailed his mate in uh, Melbourne or wherever it was uh, and shared the file. And um, I, I have no idea who actually got the published credit for it. Um, yes. But you know, if if Wallace had been able to do that, the first thing he would have done, because he was so in awe of Darwin, because yes. of um, the uh, naturalist journal that Darwin had, the Voyage of the Beagle, uh, mm-hmm. the first thing he would have done would have spilled the beans to Darwin. Yes. And goodness knows what would have happened then.
0: Yes. So there was some advantage
1: changed. in in the slowness of the communication.
0: Mm. Roger thank you so much for talking to me about all this it's been so fun to chat about our trip but also hear about your history and the importance of journals and it's been so good thank you my pleasure I hope you enjoyed this episode with Professor Roger Kitching It was a very special experience for me to talk with him again, to hear about his own early nature experiences and experiences of his first expeditions and entry into his professional life. And it was especially beautiful to remember all the wonders of nature that we saw on the trip to Brunei all those years ago. There's one memory of that trip that I'd love to share, a moment of pure wonder. On the day we arrived at the Field Study Centre, While everyone was settling into their dorms and getting acquainted with the place, I went alone down to the river, the Sungai Balalong, which runs right in front of the field study centre. I ventured upstream just a little way past a series of small rapids to a quiet little pool, and I remember so clearly sitting there alone in the water. It was hot and humid, and there was dense tropical forest on the steep slopes on either side of me, I was completely in awe of where I was, alone in the rainforest in Borneo. I couldn't believe it. I just sat there for a moment, taking it in, not being able to believe where I was. And then a wind started to move through the trees, growing stronger and stronger. And then this magical thing happened. I didn't know it at the time but this is a diptrakarp forest. Diptrakarps are trees that produce these incredible winged seeds that rotate as they're falling and this is a way of dispersing further from the parent plant. So in that moment when the wind loosened hundreds of diptrakarp seeds from their position and they started spinning and falling all at once and they rained down on me while I was there in the water and you could think of them like a blades of a helicopter rotating but I didn't think of them like that. To me in that moment they were dancers, hundreds of tiny ballet dancers pirouetting through the sky in the afternoon light in a tropical rainforest. I get goosebumps just remembering it because it was so completely amazing. I, I was completely in awe of what was happening and it's one of those nature experiences that I'll always remember for the magic of it, for the purity of that sense of wonder That we can experience in nature. This will be our final episode for 2020. It's been a crazy roller coaster of a year, and I hope you're well and safe. Wherever you are and whatever you've been through this year, I'm sending you very best wishes and thoughts for a new start in 2021 new growth, positive changes, safety, and happiness. Thank you so much for listening this year. See you next week for a new episode and a new year.